0: The
1: Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour this Tuesday, the 26th of October. Coming up for you in your hour of power tonight, we will be talking with Stephen Nathan about portfolio construction, having a look at the Biz News Portfolio. Outline and uh, the new stock that we brought into it today and get uh, the idea of uh, what one of the real experts in the business thinks. A little later in the program, we'll be bringing you Episode 7, or certainly the teaser to Episode 7, on Smokescreen. It's a investigative uh, bit of work from the Bureau for Investigative Journalism, which is based in the U.K., They are having a look at the South African tobacco industry and the shenanigans that are going on there. And in between those interviews, my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts has got uh, two contributions tonight. First up, he had a chat with Peter Major, inimitable Peter Major, the one and only Justin. They don't make them like Peter anymore, do they?
2: Exactly. Alec, the go-to man when it comes to resources. We are talking about Neil Froneman or Sabanya Stillwater's latest acquisition into Brazil. It's, that's a copper and nickel mine. Peter Major is a bit sheepish. He's concerned that Froneman might be overpaying. Uh, these metals will be used into the green economy. And he does think that this whole ESG concept has been overdone. And as a result, Sabania may be overpaying for this transaction.
1: Interesting. Can't wait to hear that. And then Cape Town's finest, Spear Property, the REIT that focuses on the mother city.
2: Exactly. Cape Town-centric or Western Cape-centric um, all over all property classes. That's residential, commercial, um, and industrial sectors. Quinton Rossi, the CEO, he's, he's a young guy, and he's also got skin in the game. He's very enthusiastic about their prospects. Um, they've increased revenues and turnover on last year, and all seems well in the Western Cape
1: We'll be listening to both of those interviews coming up a little later yeah. this evening. Before we get there, though, let's find out from Jared Neves what is being listened to, read and watched by the Business community. Jared? On our website, biznews.com,
0: Mauritius has passed South Africa as wealthiest country in Africa. David Shapiro on seeing a spending splurge in SA and Franz Krinia on KwaZulu-Natal after the riots are among the best read articles. On Business TV on YouTube, looking to apply for British British citizenship, this is what you can expect. Yesterday's Flash Briefing and David Shapiro on Insider Trading were among the most popular videos with community members. And on Business Radio on Spotify, Treasury Ones, Andre Salirs on the Turkish Lira plaguing the Rand, Yesterday's Power Hour and David Shapiro on US Tech, Ascendus, Bal and Sabane were among the most popular podcasts.
1: There's a whole treasure chest of information there. Thanks, Jared, for updating us on that. We'll get another update in just a moment from our Nadia Swat. Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes
3: South Africa's government has delayed Finance Minister Enoch Godangwana's maiden budget for a second time. Godangwana will deliver the medium-term budget policy statement on November 11th, a week later than previously announced, Parliament spokesman Moloto Motapo said on Twitter. The closely watched speech usually takes place in late October and had been rescheduled to November 4th to accommodate municipal elections initially planned for the same period. The further delay follows a decision to shift the election to November 1st, the National Treasury said in an email statement. Investors are looking to go to budget for direction and clear strategies on reducing debt and lowering the deficit. Former South African President Jacob Zuma has lost his legal bid to have the state prosecutor in his corruption trial dismissed on the grounds that he wasn't independent and impartial. The ruling was handed down by Judge Pete Kuhn at a high court hearing in the eastern town of Pietermaritzburg on Tuesday. Zuma, aged 79, stands accused of soliciting bribes from arms dealers in the 1990s and has pleaded not guilty to all charges. His lawyers argued that the entire National Prosecuting Authority team led by Billy Downer lacked credibility and could not be given the responsibility of presenting evidence against him. And ESCOM has announced that Stage 2 load shedding will be implemented from 9am on Tuesday until 5am on Saturday. This comes after the power utility had to reschedule load shedding last night at short notice to begin earlier. While ESCOM teams have successfully returned a unit each at the Kusile, Matimba and Amet power stations during the early hours of this morning, further delays in returning other units to service have exacerbated the capacity constraints hampering the ability to replenish the emergency generation reserves, ESCOM stated. ESCOM said it anticipates returning Kuberg Unit 1 to service during the weekend. And now to my colleague Justin for the market report.
2: The JSE All Share Index was up at 67,700. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies. To 14 rand, 75 cents to the dollar, 20 rand, 35 cents to the pound, and 17 rand, 13 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at one thousand seven hundred and ninety eight dollars an ounce. Kruger rand will cost twenty eight thousand rand. Brent crude is trading at eighty six dollars ten cents a barrel, and one bitcoin will cost nine hundred and twenty thousand rand. In the financial news, Sabania Stillwater has inked a one billion dollar deal to acquire two Brazilian mines, its fourth and largest investment to date, in its push to build a portfolio of metals critical to electric vehicles. Sabanya so had issued a cautionary on Monday amid reports it would spend this amount to acquire the mines in Brazil, Santarita, one of the world's largest open-pit nickel coal-based sulfate mines, and Cerrota, which has just completed the construction of a copper-gold project. The miners said on Tuesday it had signed a definite purchase and sale agreement, with its transaction expected to be concluded in the fourth quarter of 2021. Robosa's founder and CEO, Cisa Injibulana is set to step down at the end of November in the wake of the group inking a 6.3 billion rand deal aimed at tackling a debt burden that dwarfs its current market value. Njiboulana had been roped in by the group's board in April 2018 as it battled with the fallout of its investments into a Brexit-hit UK, while there had also been apparent differences over strategy with the Robosa's founder in favor of a retail-focused fund.
1: Interesting to see once again that when a company tries to go offshore, uh, that it is a graveyard too often for South Africans, particularly the UK and the United States. I remember uh, many people forget it. Both Investec and Discovery, who are great South African businesses and have done very well here and actually even in the UK, they went into America and they got a hiding, both of them writing off billions of rands. And now uh, you can hear a smaller business, Rabosa, is trying to, Get a foothold in the UK and uh, not working out,
2: Justin. Yeah, very common theme, Alec. Whether that's Africa, the UK, America, uh, the South African based companies generally do not do their international expansion correctly. And the ones that do um, have a great form of diversification. However, the amount that have gone there just doesn't seem to justify the risk.
1: So this once in Africa and say, Worst vest Taste best. Ne, Nadia, is it so any?
3: Ach, nee, kijk, Alec. <laughs> Ek is meestal trots op jou Afrikaans.
1: <laughs> <As I. laughs> this Daily Market Report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
0: Today is Tuesday, October 26th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Tesla joined the Trillion Dollar Club yesterday and internal Facebook documents continue to reveal troubling practices and internal struggles at the company. Plus, green jobs are seen by many as the key to cleaner economies and a healthier environment. But some aren't so safe for workers.
4: I think the word green, we often associate with things like safety and cleanliness and sustainability. But it's worth being a bit realistic about what some of those jobs are.
0: I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Tesla is now a $1 trillion company, according to its stock market value. Yesterday, it became the first car company to ever make the cut. The FT's Patrick McGee reports on Tesla and used to report on another big automaker when he was based in Germany.
5: I always wondered whether Tesla was going to be worth more than Volkswagen. And uh, it's now worth something like seven times out of Volkswagen. And I still find it difficult to even comprehend that. I mean, for Volkswagen, for people don't know, is the owner of 12 brands, including Audi, Porsche, Lamborghini, Bugatti. You know, these are high margin businesses that have ruled the 20th century, basically. And for Tesla to be worth all of that seems still to me a little bit crazy. And of course, to be worth seven times that is just insane, right? Or as ludicrous as a Tesla's acceleration.
0: So, Patrick, what should we make of all this? Should Tesla actually be worth a trillion dollars?
5: So it all depends on whether you think Tesla is an auto company or a tech company that happens to make cars. If it's an auto company, this clearly makes no sense whatsoever. Something like 90 million cars are built a year. Tesla only produces 500,000 of them, right? Its market share is less than one percentage point. For it to be worth more than the next nine automakers combined clearly makes no sense whatsoever. If, however, you think it's a tech company that happens to make cars, just like Apple is a tech company that happens to make phones, then you're sort of in the position that you're thinking Tesla is going to dominate and every other car maker is going to become the next Nokia or Motorola. And in that sense, look, Tesla does have a new revenue model, a sort of subscription for full self-driving, and it has the potential to earn money and profits in a way that no automaker has ever been able to before. And in that sense, you can definitely see it as the iPhone on wheels, and it deserves a a totally different premium, more in line with a Facebook or a Google or an Amazon than a Toyota or a Volkswagen.
0: Patrick McGee covers Tesla for the Financial Times. Shares of another trillion-dollar company were up yesterday, Facebook. That's despite a continuing flood of information about how the social media company operates internally. Documents that Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen leaked to the Wall Street Journal and then made available to Congress have now been seen in redacted form by other journalists, including our own technology reporter, Anna Murphy.
6: There are hundreds and hundreds of pages of these documents um, stemming back several years, some as far back as 2017, and they chronicle the inner workings of the company in a way that we've never seen before. Um, And there's also revealed throughout is the company's struggle with growth. Now, this is something we've known a little bit about, but really we're seeing for the first time that the company is particularly having troubles in Instagram and Facebook in attracting younger teen and sort of young adults under 30 you get the sense of the paranoia and the franticness at trying to solve this problem and sort of stop what could be an inevitable decline of the platform. And
0: this is something that, you know, Halgen actually mentioned, but it sounds like the documents you've been looking at make this much clearer. Right. So, how is Facebook responding, or at least, you know, what's the company's recent messaging?
6: The first thing that Facebook did when Frances publicly revealed herself was try to cast her as a sort of mid-ranking employee, saying, you know, she wasn't involved in a lot of conversations and suggest that she's cherry-picking the narrative and sort of spinning as she pleases. And this is what she accuses Facebook back of doing, saying, look, here's all this data you have internally and the way you tell your story to investors and to the public is that everything is under control and, and it's not. They have then most recently sent a lot of memos suggesting, you know, a lot of bad press is coming. But in some cases, this might be because the industries that are covering it, aka the journalism and publishers, have had their own growth struggles recently, sort of indicating that that the press is sort of waging a war against them. And so there's sort of an us versus a mainstream media narrative emerging there as well.
0: Anna Murphy is the FT's tech correspondent, and a quick note on Facebook's latest earnings report, which was out yesterday. The company said that its third quarter revenues missed estimates, and its fourth quarter revenues would be hit by Apple's changes to privacy settings, allowing users to block advertisers from tracking them. Facebook shares ended the day up about 1% and moved higher than after hours trading. <laughs> Green jobs has become a catchphrase for many politicians. It'll be a big one at next week's UN Climate Change Conference, or COP26, in Glasgow. The phrase evokes images of people installing solar panels or wind turbines or working in electric car factories. But some jobs that are good for the environment are not good for workers. I'm joined by our workplace columnist, Sarah O'Connor, to talk more about this. Hi, Sarah. Hey. So when you talk about dirty green jobs, are you referring to things like mining in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, for example, where workers dig up materials used in electric batteries?
4: Yeah, exactly. That's a kind of classic example. If you look at a metal like cobalt, for example, which is at the minute, pretty crucial for electric batteries, for electric cars and that sort of thing. 70% of all of global cobalt right now comes from the DRC. It's a country that has huge problems with kind of artisanal mining, child labor, dangerous conditions, mines collapsing, etc. So that's just one example of how the types of jobs that will actually be required to help us all transition to this kind of net zero world that we're hoping to get to. They're not all particularly clean and green and and pretty.
0: And it's not just the jobs that involve collecting resources that we need for a greener economy. Recycling is another kind of green job where working conditions are troubling. Can you you talk about what you found?
4: Yeah, so recycling is obviously really necessary if we want to avoid dumping loads of stuff in landfill. But the recycling industry has some problems around the safety of their jobs, pay levels, insecurity. Here in the UK, the safety statistics show that fatal injury rates in waste and recycling sector are about 17 times higher than the average across all industries. So that's the the kind of the second highest. So there are these sorting cabins where people stand at conveyor belts basically and they and they pick out particular items and drop them into different buckets it's pretty uh, low tech some of it and those workers can be exposed to quite high levels of dust other microbes in the air that have been released by sort of churning up all of this stuff so yeah there was a, a study here in the UK on some of those workers which found that 84% of them said that they were getting sick um, as a result of their job
0: and another thing that's getting kicked around Is lead. Um, You've cited an e-waste recycling center in the U.S. that was affecting the children of workers there. Uh, So, what should employers be doing to avoid these dangers?
4: Yeah. So the 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 lead exposure that comes from recycling of electronic waste. We're creating huge amounts of electronic waste just because we're throwing away loads of laptops and phones and and all the rest of it. So it's great that we're trying to recycle that stuff, but the issue is that it's not been built in a way that makes it particularly easy to recycle. And when you start recycling it, you end up releasing quite a lot of toxic metals, including lead. There are things that, you know, employers should do because all good employers should do them like thinking about better ventilation, protective equipment, providing showers so that workers don't accidentally sort of take particles home to their children. But I mean, you can also think a bit more carefully about the entire process, right? Because actually, if manufacturers design these products in such a way that they are designed to be at some point disassembled again, you could make these jobs safer by making these things more straightforward to disassemble and without the release of so many bad side effects.
0: Now, would this cost a lot of money? And does this change the economic calculus for green industries?
4: Um, I mean, all of these things cost money. And obviously, manufacturers don't love the idea of changing the way they design things or trying to make them last longer or make them more repairable. But then again, I mean, the whole argument with climate change is that the cost of doing nothing is so much greater than the cost of doing something. And I think if you want to take people on board with this transition, which obviously politicians do, you need to make sure that actually the jobs that are created as a result of it are decent ones that are helping to contribute to decent quality lives.
0: Sarah O'Connor is a columnist for the FT. Thank you, Sarah. Pleasure. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT news briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
1: Stephen Nathan, nice to be back with you again, Stephen. An interesting change of life that you're going through at the moment.
7: Uh, we're selling our house and we, uh, we're moving uh, to an apartment. It's quite a stressful situation moving anyway. You know, we have a family of three children, so there's a lot to, lot to move, a lot that's been accumulated over the last 14 years. Um, But what really has kind of taken me by surprise is the compliance certificate. As an example, uh, we even have beetle compliance in Cape Town. So there's a beetle compliance, there's water compliance, there's gas compliance, there's electrical compliance. And, you know, we lived in this house for 14 years and we hadn't had any major problems. I thought it was going to be a mere formality. Uh, And then the electrical guys have come in and they've ripped us apart. There's an incredibly long laundry list It's going to take five full days with a team of about five or six people. On the one hand, you think, well, it's obviously how did I live here for so long without any of these problems? Was I putting myself and my family at risk? You obviously trust people along the way, you know, to do the installations. And it's just given me a big wake-up call. You know, for example, they say you put an inverter in and the inverter person, you know, they messed with a board and that's not compliant. And you've got a water system, (laughs) a gray water system, and that's also – uh, and it's, it's 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 a bit of a wake up call, but you also try and reconcile. this incredibly, uh, I guess it's good, but maybe it seems to be a bit overkill, you know, in a country where uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, sort of a lawlessness and lack of compliance and lack of ethics uh, in so many areas of uh, uh, of our country. But as a as a citizen, as a law abiding citizen, I must say, you know, it's pretty it's pretty onerous. But I guess also maybe good that uh, that we have this level of rigor when we buy and sell property. Uh,
1: while we're talking about compliance and issues like that, we have a business share portfolio, which has been going now for nearly seven years. In fact, uh, on the 5th of de- December, it'll be seven years. And this morning we had our webinar and we decided to buy Avenge. Now, the way I structured the portfolio was interesting. To start off with was by having five, uh, what I called wild cards at 8% each. So that's 40%. And then the other 60% was in very solid, uh, one part was uh, Berkshire Hathaway and the other part was in an S&P 500 index, mainly in an offshore portfolio. But as it's uh, evolved over the years, uh, it is really a model portfolio. It's something so that uh, business community members can have an idea of how to what to invest in, and then we update it every month. It's, it's for our premium subscribers. But maybe to start on two points, let's start with Avenge as a example. Why I like Avenge is I've gone through, well, it was triggered by your good friend, Pitfuliun, to start off with. He said it was one of his twigs, one of his, uh, in, in the bundle that he buys, he buys these high-risk uh, high risk, uh stocks, but then many of them or a number of them, so five or six of them, puts them into a bundle and expecting that not all of them are going to go right. This one's gone spectacularly right for him. It's gone from two cents to six cents. But on the other hand, uh, Bernard Swanepoel, who I know very well, who's the former CEO of Harmony, he's been extremely selective about the the companies that he's gone and been a director on, and he's just joined this board. So when I saw that, I thought, well, Pitt and Bernard, both of them are now pressing you in that direction. I read the annual report, went through all the numbers in a lot of detail. See a company that's trading on a price to earnings of three. It's actually transformed itself after going through desperate times in 2018. Uh, 2019 was difficult as well. Now it's making profits. To me, it looks like one of those that uh, you you might call the the proverbial fat pitch, but there's (laughs) all, nothing is that easy, is it, Stephen?
7: Uh, no, no, it isn't um, you know, as you say uh, you know when you're looking at sort of a what we call portfolio construction you know there's 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 kind of quite a lot of thought that one can put behind it. you know I normally look and say, well you know what is the investor's objective what's your time horizon you know so you want to uh, I'll just give you an example a lot of people are investing let's say for retirement you know you might be thirty years old, your retirement horizon is thirty five years you know, and your objective is to say when I hit sixty five you know, I want to have the biggest retirement pot possible without being silly along the way. Uh, you know, and then you would put in a portfolio that you thought was going to, you know, give you the highest probability of achieving that. And you wouldn't be overly concerned about, you know, short term fluctuations and quarterly earnings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but most of us, uh, uh, although we are long term investors, we are overly concerned about the short term fluctuations. So, you know, you've got to you've got to look at your time horizon and then your asset allocation. And then, as you say, you know uh, you'd kind of build down from that to say well you know what portion should i have in 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 equities and in bonds and cash and property and local and and and, and offshore uh, and then when you're looking at the equity piece um uh, you know i think that uh, uh, it depends upon your level of kind of sophistication and your interest um but it's not a bad idea to to put a small a relatively small proportion of your portfolio in what we would call um, more more speculative uh, 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 stocks that have the possibility of doing really well, but you're not too exposed to them, so that uh, if things went wrong, you know they would materially damage your your wealth.
1: So the wild cards, as it were, that you'd be looking at. So be a bit specific on Aveng. Do you know the company?
7: Uh, a little bit, yes. You know, um, so so if, if you know, if we look at the construction sector in South Africa. Uh, you know it's 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 a bit like uh, 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 the airline industry very capital intensive and 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 hasn't done well in south Africa uh, It's really uh, you know the cost of, of of sort of the capital equipment to construct uh, is is high so you've got high capital costs and then you either tend to do really well or really poorly in general in south Africa we've had low fixed investment, so it hasn't been a great environment. Uh, then we had the bonanza of the twenty ten World Cup and there was an enormous amount of construction. So that was a, a boom period. Uh unfortunately there was a bit of price collusion uh and, and some of these companies suffered quite a lot uh with fines thereafter. Um but but it's been a really barren period and these companies that have that have got very high capital costs, high debt costs, uh in the downturn, you know, have done really uh, really poorly. But but um there's a price for everything and a lot of there's less competition. So a lot of the, uh, we've seen consolidation in the construction industry, so there are fewer players. And these these companies are getting smarter about how they manage their capital. Uh, And as you say, when you start to see good people like Bernard Swanepoel and others uh, associate themselves with this company, you know, that tends to be a good forward looking indicator that, you know, uh, credible people have done their own due diligence. Uh, and that's probably a good sign that, uh, you know, that there's a lot there's a lot uh, of potential upside. I mean, a bench is down something like 99 percent over five years. Uh, so, you know, so the potential for it to go up 20, 30, 40 times you know, is, is is not impossible. There's a reasonably good probability. But once again, it's a small company. Its market cap is something like, what's it? I don't even think it's uh, billion. Four
1: 4 billion. It's 4
7: billion now. Okay, well, I guess it's, yeah. Yeah, so it's, you're right. About 3.7 billion. So as you said, it's gone from, from 2 cents to 6 cents. Uh, so it's triple. Um, but, but, you know, you can't buy that much as an investor, certainly uh, maybe as an individual investor. But, you know, but a fund can't buy that much, which does give an opportunity for the smaller investor to come in because you know you might be buying you, what maybe it might be 20,000 grand, not a hundred million that a, that, a, that a big fund would have to buy. Um, so you know it's definitely it's definitely uh, worth a what I would call a bit of a punt, um, but uh, also just you know have your right expectations and 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 these things can turn quite quickly, and that's why people like Pitts and others uh, want to hold a basket of these uh, more speculative shares because, uh, you know, you know that they're not all going to do well and probably only one or two, but all you need is one out of six to shoot the lights out and you would do very well overall.
1: It's also important to do your homework. For instance, my, philo- my thought of Avent from the outside was exactly the same as what you've articulated. However, they are a company that's really got two subsidiaries. One is a massive uh, business in Australia, construction business, traditional construction business that's been profitable throughout. The other in South Africa, what they have here is a mining contractor called Mormons, which is very profitable and doing very well. So my immediate idea was the old LTA uh, uh, Grinica LTA kind of uh, that was avenged. That's gone. All they have now is this mining contracting business. So it's a, it's very interesting. And when you pull out that annual report and spend a few hours reading through it, as we should do as investors in every company that we invest in. Sometimes you get a happy surprise. I got a very happy surprise in this one, and uh, I, that's why I'm I'm suggesting that people go and do their homework go and read about it, and see whether or not they uh, would agree with the 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 opportunity. It's turned around really nicely, and that's often for me. If a company's well capitalized, it's it's come from a bad position, started to make profit. It's the one that starts to to. To attract one's interest, but I think the key point though is is homework stephen isn't that so?
7: without a doubt, as you say you know um, you know going through the annual report is a fantastic discipline um, and you know what is a good idea is 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 to kind of uh, go back at least five years if you if you're really a serious investor you'd go back at least five years and you'd read what the company said, you know what were their expectations, what was the outlook? You know what was the strategy? You know, and if you see a company that is consistent in its outlook and its strategy, and is credible because you know they 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 sort of deliver on their promises and they don't change all the time, you know that gives you much more confidence. Um, but a lot of a lot of uh, uh, people don't put that level of of homework in, so they're looking really at the short run. Or you know, I listen to the CEO and the CEO sounded incredibly you know bullish and optimistic and and uh, that's probably the last thing you should do is listen to the CEO we used to have a thing when I was at Deutsche Bank if any of the analysts said you know management says this would say no you never say management says you know what is what are the facts say what are the numbers say uh, because because you know management uh, uh, they almost incentivize to talk up a good story uh, and recently I was reading something about it. About great investors and they, they, they basically contrasted the personality a great investor is someone who's unemotional uh, who's not is probably socially a little bit awkward I mean if you look at these great investors they 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 they're quite awkward people because they are devoid of emotions and they don't get caught up in the crowds and the eu- euphoria that most of us do and 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 CEOs are very on the opposite side they're much more gregarious they're nice people you know they're easy to talk to uh, so you've got to be careful who you, who you pick. Um, but definitely uh, you know, read the annual report, but go back in time uh, because, you know, uh, there's a lot of rich information. And as you say, a company like Avenge is not what it used to be uh, 5, 10 years ago. It's a very different animal. And you wouldn't necessarily find that out if you were you know, listening to management uh, or listening to other punters uh, and weren't doing the homework yourself.
3: How does business
8: empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities, and by backing the next generation of
9: business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard
8: Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply.
2: I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and with me to discuss Sabanya Stillwater's latest acquisition is mining guru Peter Major. Yesterday, Sabania issued a cautionary announcement relating to the acquisition of a nickel and copper mine in Brazil. In order for it to constitute as a cautionary, the acquisition is quite sizable in nature, $1 billion, which has been confirmed by Sabania this morning. From a practical perspective, and to provide some context, what are nickel and copper used for in the real world? What are nickel and copper
10: used for? <laughs> one's for storing electricity and one's for transmitting electricity, for, for starters. But, it, yeah, I, I think copper's not used in plumbing very much anymore, especially now with its high price, over $4.50 a pound. But we've seen plastic and other um, new age materials used more in plumbing. But, yeah, wiring, you know nothing transmits electricity better than copper except silver and we know there's a big difference in price uh, copper's great at heat great at electricity uh doesn't rust oxidizes a little bit it's reusable recyclable and it looks like the demand is insatiable nickel nickel has more uses you know we see it in stainless steel uh we see it in alloys but, but a lot of the, the traditional High capacity, high storage batteries, used nickel, nickel sulfate. Um, is it going to be the, the metal of the future? I don't know how anybody can predict this. It, it's like when Betamax was competing against VHS. Can you imagine guys were putting their money? Which one's going to be the one of the future? Well, Betamax lost out. VHS won. But how long did it really win for? Justin because you had to think completely out of the box and you had to go to CDs right and by the time you put all your money into CDs what happened Netflix so when these guys have conferences and saying we're only investing in metals of the future please you know it takes you two years to find a mine that has that metal probably takes you three four years to get your licenses another couple of years to start producing who the heck could predict the future. I don't even think Moses could if he was here.
2: There's been lots of hype around these green metals, Peter, as you've been saying. I don't think anyone is privy to the numbers behind the transaction as of yet in terms of revenue, bottom line of the mines, but are you a bit concerned that this transaction may be at the top of the cycle for these green metals of the future?
10: Definitely, Justin. I'm definitely concerned about that. A lot of people are. I, I remember talking to Cynthia Carroll at Around 207, early 208, she was telling me the fantastic prices they were getting for selling what they called second, third tier assets. Angles never had third tier assets, but they were selling some small assets, maybe isolated from um, offices and, and other places like railroads, infrastructure, you know, they were selling isolated assets for fantastic prices. And and she was quoting some of the coal mines they were selling real orphans stranded at, at three times what they'd paid for them three, four years ago, five years ago. And I said, I know that's great news, Cynthia, but you have to realize the same applies to the assets you're buying. You're also buying assets for three and four times the price somebody paid for them a few years ago. So you know, it's like you're switching your your money from the crap table to the slot machine or from the roulette table to something else. Yeah, we're all concerned. A billion dollars is a lot of money. And let's look at these assets, Justin. They say the copper mine is going to produce at around 15,000 tons a year. Refined copper. Well, copper's currently 10,000. So what's 10 times 15? Is that a 150 million revenue? So I don't know what they're paying for that copper asset, but the fact is South Africa had lots of copper assets that produce 15,000 tons and Sabanya made a choice. You know, they announced it. Unfortunately, we can't currently look at putting new capital into South Africa until a lot of important things are dealt with until some very negative things are changed. And so we are losing out, you know, this country is losing out a few hundred million dollars on the copper assets that they could have been buying here. Instead, that money's going to, you say, Brazil or a roundabout way to London. Now, let's look at the nickel assets. Okay, I, I think the nickel assets, they're talking normalized production, 15,000 tons a year, refined nickel. So nickel is currently $20,000 a tonne. So that's a possible $300 million revenue. And I made a mistake on copper. I think the annual production is going to be 20. So 20 times 10. So they're going to get $300 million a year revenue out of the nickel. They're going to get $200 million a year out of the copper. $500 million revenue. And they're going to pay a billion for those assets. So they're paying two times revenue. The sad part is Sabanya is trading at a four and a half P.E., They would love it if they could trade at 11 or 12 PE like Afromat. Afromat can go out there and pay um, three, four, five times PEs because they're trading on 11, 12 PE. But unfortunately, Sabanya, you know, they're trading on a a four to five PE. Um, That's the trouble. Their script is still priced very cheap, single digit, like all of our mining companies. I think Angles still trading on a six and a half PE. Arm trading on a, a four, a three and a half. Um, that's our problem. South African paper is trading on very low P/E, hardly any on a double digit P/E.
2: Peter, you've analyzed Neil Froneman led businesses for many years now. You know and understand the kind of individual he is. He said he's planning on retiring in the next two to three years. And during that time frame, he's looking to double the size of the business. Given the ups and downs in the commodity cycle, does a statement like that, should that make shareholders feel a little bit skittish?
10: Yeah, because you've got to to clarify that statement. We've seen lots of presentations, Justin, where these mining houses or mining companies, they will show you their share price not their share price. They'll show you their market cap or their NAV like five or 10 years ago. And they'll say it was a billion dollars. And today it's $5 billion. So they're shining their badges and and their faces beaming to the cameras and the public. I've grown this company fivefold in five years, but you might see the share price has gone down 50%. You know, it went from a buck to 50 cents. So yes, it's, it's not about growing the size of the company as much as growing the size of the share price. And, and you would like the shares to stay constant and go up twofold, threefold, rather than the share stays where it's at and the company goes up two and threefold by the creation of new
2: shares. As we've spoken about in the past, the miners through this cycle have been incredibly disciplined. Now that we've seen commodity prices come off a bit across the board, and the miners still have excess cash, this war chest we've spoken about. Do you expect a bit more MA activity?
10: I do. Not so much because the metal prices have come off, but time wears everybody out. The strongest man will get wore out by time. And if you keep making money at high metal prices, month after month, quarter after quarter, year after year, that money's accumulating and eventually you're going to crack. Eventually, you're going to say, I want to spend some of this money myself. I don't want to just give it back to shareholders. I want to spend some. And also, we're starting to wonder, does this super cycle have more legs? It's been going on for more than 15 years now. Without a doubt, this is the longest super cycle of metal prices ever. And so people are saying, geez, we thought it was a 5 or 10-year cycle. Now it's a 15, 16-year cycle, maybe 17 years. Maybe it's got another three years to go. And and yes, if the assets you're looking at have come down in price with the metals the last few months, then they warrant a good hard look. And and we've seen these PGMs, you know, rhodiums come from twenty nine thousand dollars to fourteen thousand and it came down pretty quick and it was over 50 percent of their revenue. But now at fourteen thousand, it's still a big chunk. And yet it seems to have stabilized at 14. So hell, maybe the world's going to be happy paying 14,000 for rhodium. And and platinum seems to be happy over a 1,000. That's its long-term average anyways. Palladium is surprising. Palladium is staying here at $2,000 an ounce. So as long as assets you were looking at at the peak three, four, five months ago, if those assets have come down in price, can measure it with these metal prices, well, maybe there's trading at same value relative. Look, I don't think people are panicking here that the discipline is the longer these companies generate huge cash, the harder it is to be disciplined and not buy something.
1: James Ball is the international editor of the Bureau for Investigative Journalism. And the Bureau has been putting together, uh, as we well know now, because we're into week seven, smokescreen. Focus on the South African tobacco industry, what have you got for us this week
9: well we've we 've got the end in sight we 've only got one more episode after this one, but uh, quite glad to say i don 't i 't think we 've quite run out of uh, pace yet um, we sort of we sort of start there 's a little bit of uh, tantalizing stuff about sort of some of the surveillance equipment these people were buying and all of that. but our big story this week actually takes us into Zimbabwe. Um, and actually some of the efforts British American tobacco were doing to actually sort of tackle smuggling from some of their rivals. And really, this is, this is where things went quite wrong for them. Um, they had three sort of private security agents operating within Zimbabwe's borders who managed to get themselves in trouble with the authorities. And of course, BAT has got to try and work out how to get them out, how to get them released. You know, it's not not really somewhere you want to get looked up. Um, and fairly extraordinarily, they all seem to have discussed, and I should say we don't know whether this was ever actually paid or not, but they quite openly discussed paying a substantial bribe to Robert Mugabe uh, just sort of months before one of his, you know, obviously rigged re-election uh, bids as well. Um and what's sort of quite extraordinary about this is it wasn't just their security agents who were in on this conversation. You know, it wasn't just the middlemen. British American Tobacco itself was involved in discussing this sort of really quite substantial bribe.
1: It's it's the reality. It's the real world. Uh, we know in South Africa and we know from business people in South Africa who do discuss from time to time what it's like doing business north of the Limpopo River that you've got to pay bribes it is just part of the structure however if you're a footsie listed company certainly one of the biggest on the uh, London Stock Exchange and you're holding yourself out to be holier than holy uh, you can't be found out that you've been playing this game and I guess here is where the embarrassment must be acute I mean
9: you know as as you say sort of Of course, you can't operate in Zimbabwe without paying bribes. That's the the reality of dealing with sort of corrupt autocracies. But it's more complicated than just embarrassment for British American tobacco um, because the UK actually has incredibly strong laws on bribery. And it's one of the sort of very few things where the UK will claim what's called extraterritoriality. Um, And basically, if you're a British company, the UK government since 2010 has said you cannot pay a bribe for any reason anywhere in the world. Um, And really, really, it's only imminent threat to life that changes that. You know, if you're at a roadblock that's been set up, that's about the one time. Um, And I mean, we run into it as journalists. Sort of, you know, a few years ago, you would sort of be able... Just, you know, some some ports, some airports and things are very hard to get through without greasing a few palms. We we get told we can't even do that now. You know, you can't pass, you know, $10 here, $50 there even. So to be looking at $500,000 is, you know, there's clearly legal risks there for them, even if, you know, this might not be the worst reason you've ever heard to be looking to pay someone off. Uh you know, they are trying to look out for their staff here. Um, you know, and as I say, we're not sure whether the bribe was paid. What we do know is two or three days after they were talking about whether to pay this. And the amount they were talking about was about five thousand five hundred thousand uh, dollars, which I think is about seven million rand. Is that about right? Um, so pretty sizable sums here. Um, we do know they were released two or three days after they talked about that. So there's definitely embarrassment factor when you're saying that you're aiding law enforcement to be looking at these decisions. Um, but there's also possibly some legal questions for them to answer in the UK, given you know we supposedly have this very strict law that's led to very, very few convictions and very few companies actually being in trouble.
1: The ethics are interesting, aren't they? That you have a country that at the time was deeply corrupt. BAT operated in the country, presumably because they could buy tobacco at a very good price. And they were, as you explained, supposedly in there to stop the smuggling of cigarettes across the border. However, all of that brings enormous risks if it is. Brought into the open, which is what you guys at the bureau have done.
9: So yes, I suspect they've probably had enough of us uh, bringing these things into the open at this point. Um, and of course, you know, should should say as we we consistently do in a statement, BAT denied any wrongdoing. Um, but yes, it's sort of the difficulties of some of this effort seems to be actually you know what, they did want to stop this smuggling because it was of rival cigarette brands and it was letting those brands undercut them, which damages their own market share. Um, But there's some benefit to society of cutting down smuggling. You know, if if people are going to smoke, the absolute least that people can get is money into the tax system to help deal with the consequences of that. Um, But there are these sort of things of no one has to operate in Zimbabwe, you know, if if you don't, someone else will. And so if you make the choice to go in there and operate in those environments, you are accepting that you might have to do what's necessary to function there. And if you are a company that's trying to look respectable and trying to look new sort of generation, you know, BAT are sort of trying to say they you know they now believe in a sort of post-smoking world, and you know they they believe in vapes and everything. They've got the um, slogan now: "A better tomorrow," uh, which you know seems a bit cheesy to me, but they're welcome to it. Then, when you make the decisions to work in markets like Zimbabwe, you're really sort of sending very mixed messages to people about who you are and what you're doing.
1: Authenticity, yeah. Or lack of it, in other words. But uh, let's have a listen now to the teaser for the latest episode of Smokescreen.
9: This week on Episode 7 of Smokescreen.
7: Since 2010, our government, by estimation, has lost more than 15 billion rand due to illicit cigarettes.
9: Cigarette smuggling is a huge issue in South Africa.
7: The very important point is the illicit cigarettes funds feeds and
1: supports organized crime
9: as we've reported british american tobacco claims they were trying to put a stop to smuggling but things quickly went bad when they got in the way of the wrong person someone close to the much feared dictator robert mugabe
7: we understand they got into some trouble um in zimbabwe they they got on the wrong side of the mugabe regime by the sounds of it
9: a deal would have to be
7: made. I understand you might have helped out as a field operative to send messages between the two parties. We speak to the man who was right at the
9: centre of it all.
10: There's a lot at stake in that game. Millions upon billions of dollars. Uh, You know, my face, my voice gets out there. It won't be good for me, I don't think.
9: Listen to this week's episode wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Smokescreen on your favorite platform.
1: You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com.
2: I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News and with me is Quinton Rossi, CEO of Spearit, a Western Cape-centric property company. Quinton, results look really solid from a high level. Where, in your opinion, do you think there lies the most room for improvement?
8: Uh, Justin, thanks. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, I think the you know the room for improvement probably lies in the uh, hospitality sector. I think that we have a clear plan uh, to exit this asset uh, asset type, and as we do that. Uh, we'll be able to further reach the balance sheet, uh, which will align the LTV closer and closer to that uh, LTV band of 38% to 43%. Uh, this will obviously give us additional uh, optionality in terms of investment capital uh, that we can deploy into um, better yielding assets with fixed income, uh, because uh, for the listeners, you know, the um, the hotel business is a business of variable income. Uh, so, your income uh, consistency isn't as um, consistent as your commercial, industrial, and retail investment assets.
2: You mentioned load-to-value, Quentin. It's unchanged at around in the mid-40s. Are you comfortable with this metric here? And if not, what would be the optimal level of gearing?
8: Yeah, so we have said that the 45.91% uh, LTV ratio is on the upper end of our band. Um, and uh, an optimal gearing ratio for us uh, would be closer to 41% and uh, if we had to present a, a LTV range uh, it is clearly our stated intention to operate at between 38% and uh, 43% LTV at any given time.
2: Spear has a diverse property portfolio spanning across residential, office, commercial and as you mentioned even hospitality. Hospitality aside, which subsectors have been the hardest hit by the pandemic? And conversely, which subsectors were unaffected or were quick to bounce back?
8: I think the, 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 deeply, the deepest affected subsector has been the commercial office environment. I think that the, um, the fact that uh, there's been a reluctance, uh, given the clumsy rollout of vaccinations, uh, for corporate South Africa to place pressure on their workers to return to office, just given the liabilities that could be exposed on those companies, uh, there's been a very slow return to work momentum. But as, you know, 21% of South Africans are now fully vaccinated, one can assume that that a very high percentage of that 21% are uh, working-class people. Um, We have seen that the return to office um, just on our portfolio, from a how many parking bays are occupied in the buildings, how, how bad traffic is in the morning, that has consistently increased. Um, you know, as the vaccine rollout gains momentum, and then two specific subsectors which we are heavily invested into has uh, has really performed well during this period. The first is which comprises 55% of our portfolio. GLA is industrial. Uh, We have seen um, very little tenant support measures having to be initiated across uh, our industrial portfolio in terms of deferments and credits. And we've also seen limited uh, um, deferments and credits having to be provided to our retail tenants because historically and as part and parcel of our investment strategy, we only invest into convenience retail assets. And from the hard lockdown all the way through down to level one, uh, our convenience retail tenants have, have, for the most part, been able to trade. And given the fact that 41% of our convenience retail tenants are national tenants, they were permitted to trade under alert level five um, all the way through. So in particular, those two asset types have, have shown incredible resilience. And specifically from a strategy going forward, you know, those are the asset types that we are looking to further build into the portfolio.
2: Quentin, on the office space, what's your take on work from home? Are you a traditional office setup kind of guy or more laissez-faire work from home setup? And what do you think the longer term trends are going to be specifically for the office property sector going forward?
8: So, you know, Justin, I don't think that the work from home is a one size fits all solution. I think that um, it's, it's almost impossible for one to navigate your career uh, through one's spare room. I think the need for shared experience, for uh, shared culture, for transfer of culture and transfer of knowledge is critical. And I think that, uh, yes, there would be an augmentation of your typical five days a week, nine to five um, uh, work week. Uh, But uh, I don't think it's going to be of such a material nature um, uh, once the world is uh, you know, kind of back on its feet. If you look at countries like Asia, you look at places like Luxembourg, we've already seen, um, you know, offer, return to office trends uh, close to pre-COVID levels. And in places like Asia, you know, people's accommodation is so uh, minute that they actually can't work and live in the same space. And typically in South Africa, we, not everybody that works in the economy has the luxury of a home office or a or a spare room. So typically, yes, during the heightened levels of lockdown, everybody had to adapt and everybody had to just align themselves with the regulations to flatten the curve. But I think that the future of work uh, is probably going to be a you know three to four days in the office and the optionality, two to one days working remotely, but let me ask you this question: How do you build a building over Zoom? You know, the structural engineer can't design a concrete floor with an architect and all the other consultants, whilst trying to educate a younger professional on the skills of a structural uh, design. And I think that comes that that bodes true for call center services. That bodes true for other professional services firms like law firms, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that physically need to meet their clients and actually be in the building in order to learn from their peers.
2: I completely agree, and many fair points made there. Um, On to the portfolio as a whole, slight valuation uplift. It was your interim numbers. So just a question whether these were independently valued and uh, what are the valuation protocols spear uses given its importance to the financials?
8: So we, we obviously have to, given that we're a listed fund, uh, we have to comply with the JAC listing requirements. Uh, firstly, our valuation is the, the strategy is that uh, every year, one third of the portfolio gets valued independently. So on a, th- on a three-year basis, uh, there's a full valuation on the portfolio uh, for the interim period. Uh, we had approximately four properties independently valued and the balance were valued internally, uh, noting that our chief investment officer, Kim Faf Kog, is a registered valuer together with a registered uh, chartered surveyor um, who is able to provide very accurate and aligned uh, valuation techniques. And further to this, our auditors have also appointed a third-party independent valuer on their own account um, to, 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 as a peer review on the valuations provided by our independent valuers. So we believe that the portfolio presents fair value. Uh, we believe that the portfolio, and also we compare with, you know, everybody was of the opinion that, um, you know, that property values were going to decline by 20, 30, 40% in the height of this COVID pandemic. Uh, but to be honest with you, within the Western Cape where we operate, we haven't seen any bargains, and we believe that property values have held up quite well. And I think that uh, from a spear perspective, just given the conservative nature of our valuations compared to some of our peers, uh, those valuations are very, very sound and credible.
2: Where are the growth nodes in the Western Cape that Speer will be looking to target going forward? Almost like the waterfall precinct in the Gauteng, to give you an example.
8: So for us, we we know that the Pardon Island area is an incredible growth node from a mixed-use um, uh, perspective. Uh, people want to live closer to where they work, um, and that's a trend that's been even coming pre-COVID. Uh, so our marine place development, we believe, is really going to kick off quite a um, kind of domino effect in terms of development for that particular node. Uh, we also believe that the uh, northern suburbs, Balville South precinct, um, is a very attractive investment node and we've seen that opportunities where we can acquire older sites and do a site assembly um, and then do a redevelopment or an enhancement um, uh, of our industrial portfolio and probably the toughest uh, portfolio enhancements in terms of acquisitions that we that we are experiencing were, is to grow our convenience retail portfolio because we value investors uh, we know we don't like to overpay for assets. Uh, we believe that um, you actually unlock part of the value of your asset on the day that you purchase it, not necessarily the day that you sell it. Um, so we are on the lookout for uh, a larger um, convenience retail assets. Uh, and we also believe that the West Coast, um, from uh, Atlantis up the West Coast, we are going to start seeing more and more. Uh, growth opportunities as Stellenbosch University expands campuses out uh, towards the West Coast.
1: We look forward to being back in your company again, same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, from our team, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews.